This morning is October 23rd. It is Sunday morning. Our message this morning is In Over Your Head. I thought that was kind of a clever title to have a baptism message, In Over Your Head. (laughs) That is not a uh, slant on my Methodist friends out there that sprinkle. I just thought it was a clever title. I want to read you something. We often struggle with thoughts about baptism. We see baptism usually as something that is done for kids as they come to the Lord. As an adult, it's a harder thing to be baptized. And the basic reason for that is there's more pride in an adult than there is in a kid. A kid doesn't see anything wrong with doing whatever he believes Jesus wants. An adult has to weigh the social consequences. What will husband think? What will wife think? What will my friends think? And yet that's exactly why God calls adults to be baptized. People often are very concerned, well, I was baptized when I was a kid. So what does this mean if I get baptized now? Does it invalidate the first one? Does it say it's bad or it's wrong? What will my parents think? Will will my parents be offended? Those are all questions that come to mind. We're just going to talk about some of this this morning, okay? I wanted to read you a story along those lines, okay? I thought that this was a appropriate story. It says, when Queen Victoria of England reigned as Empress of India, the Maharaja of Punjab was just a little boy. To show his allegiance, he sent her a magnificent sparkling diamond. It became one of the crown jewels and was safely kept in the Tower of London. When he became a man, he went to London to pay his respects to the Queen. The young man asked the Queen if he could see the diamond. The precious jewel was brought in and presented before the Indian prince. Then taking the diamond and kneeling before the queen, he said with deep emotion, Madam, I gave you this jewel when I was too young to know the significance of what I was doing. I want to give it to you again in the fullness of my strength with all of my heart, affection, and gratitude, now and forevermore as an adult fully realizing what it is that I'm doing. That apparently is a true story. And I think that that really is something that demonstrates what many of us, especially if you grew up in a church, go through with this thought of dedication for baptism. When we're children, we understand the principles of baptism like a child. When you get older, sometimes there is a strong desire to identify with Christ in a more meaningful way. You know, when you're baptized at six years old, it's really difficult for you to understand what it is to identify with the death of Christ, that you might identify with the life of Christ. You know, as a kid, I was baptized quite a few times, actually. (laughs) I was baptized as a Lutheran. I was baptized several times as a Baptist. One time I was baptized, and the guy that went in the water before me, we had on our little white gowns, you know. He had purple hair from a party the night before, and it washed off in the water. So as I stepped down into the water, my gown got purple, you know. That's what I was thinking about while I was getting baptized. Now, did that mean that I was just totally insincere and a bad kid? No, it really wasn't. I wouldn't have been there if I was totally insincere. It just means I thought like things about things like a child. One day, I was reading the Scripture with Matthew Pirro. I was under the impression that I had rededicated my life when I came to the conclusion that my life had never changed until a month prior and that it had changed so dramatically, my life prior didn't even look like salvation, even if it was. And at that moment, I looked up at Matthew and said, Hey, I need you to baptize me. 
Now, Matthew was still a kid in high school. I was just a young kid who had just gotten married. We ran right out to the swimming pool at our apartment complex, and it was hilarious. It was like turning on a light and watching cockroaches run when we got in the water. All the bikinis, all of the Speedos, everything just ran for the doors when we began to talk about Jesus and baptize. Now, here's what made that special to me. I was saved before. I was saved after. There was no difference there. This was a public confession. It was a very public statement that said, the consequences are forgotten. The penalties, I could care less. I want to identify with Christ. I don't care who sees it. In fact, I prefer that everybody sees it. That kind of stand for Jesus is something that He can't help but honor. All too often, our baptisms in church are before a select group of people in a very private place and in a safe environment. It's kind of like swimming in the kiddie pool as an adult. The reason that baptisms occurred in the river in the Bible is because it was the most public place that you could do it. If there had been a more public place with water, they would have done it there. They wanted the world to know. And in most cases, in most countries, you are not persecuted, you are not even considered a Christian until you're baptized. Now, I'm not telling you that baptism is a requirement for salvation. I know much better than that. I was saved, and that was a spiritual act that had nothing to do with this. Just like you could be married and not have a wedding ring. But when you meet a married man that won't wear his wedding ring, isn't that a sign of a problem? If you will not be baptized as an adult, that's just a sign of a problem. doesn't mean you're not married. It's just a sign of a commitment problem, isn't it? I had the unfortunate experience of being a young man at a dinner table one time where there were other women older than myself and other men older than myself, and I saw a man take off his wedding ring while he was at the table because in conversation he didn't want the women to know he was married. I can't describe how that hurt my heart the way in which it crushed me because as a little boy I knew that there was something sacred about that covenant and this was a sign of that covenant. That's all the wedding ring is. It's a sign of the covenant. It's supposed to shine forth in the darkest room. This person is in covenant. Well, that's what baptism is. It is a sign of the covenant. It's something that shines forth publicly that says this person has died to their own life. The life that they live now, they live in Christ. So with that in mind, Let's go to the Scripture. Y'all with me? Y'all mad? Y'all asleep? Y'all don't care? Y'all, y'all ready to go get baptized right now, aren't you? We can stop preaching right now. Y'all going to get in the water. Take me down to the river, Lord. All right. In Matthew 13, we're going to pick up with some text here. You didn't think you could learn from the Maharaja of Punjab, did you? What a strange name and a strange place, huh? Matthew 13, starting in uh, verse 44. By the way, do you all remember what we covered last Sunday? It didn't get on CD. You know, I, I, I was really happy too. We did not cover this on CD. And I got emails from people that said, where's last week's sermon? That made me feel good. We'll keep them hungry and they'll keep coming back. <laughs> said, well, you know, if you really want to make sure you hear all those messages, you can come to church. It's a 400-mile drive for that particular person, but hey, nothing's too much for Christ, right? 
Y'all in Matthew 13? Last week, our message was on the parable of the sower. The, the message in the Great Commission, really not all that complicated. Get them saved, teach them to obey the commands, and get them baptized. Matthew 13 pretty well follows that, that uh, method, if you will. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, teaches about getting saved, counting the cost, what it means to be saved, how you stay saved. The rest of Matthew teaches you about how to keep the commands, be declared wheat instead of weeds. And goes on to teach you about baptism. All right, in Matthew 13, verse 44, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Let me pause there for a minute. The kingdom of heaven is like finding a treasure in a field, looking around, making sure nobody else saw it, hiding it again, and running out and selling everything you have to go buy that treasure. What happens to us is you hear the Word of God. You begin to treasure it up in your heart. You get back from it for a distance and consider what it's going to cost you to be obedient to that Word of God. You think about it. You say, well, if I do this, then I'm going to have to give up all of these things or at least be willing to do it. And then you joyfully go and do that. You know, one of the problems with Christians, though, is you joyfully give up everything that you have to follow Jesus, and now that you're following Jesus, you've spent your life trying to acquire all of those things back. And they begin to get in conflict with Jesus. I've met more Christians, more Christians in ministry, that start off with fire, because it's easy to preach fire in a garage. It is. But in the cathedral, with the weight of a, a mortgage with the weight of the peer pressure from the audience, with when you get big enough to people outside your church are commenting on what you do and writing newspaper articles and those kind of things, all of a sudden there is a treasure there that is competing with the treasure that you sold everything to get. And it's a problem. It's difficult for men when they get big in their own eyes or in the eyes of others. How much better it is to be a pauper but possess the eternal treasures. Now... I'm not trying to speak an allegory this morning. I want this to be just as plain as can be. The day that you signed up with Jesus, you signed up to lose your life. Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus is He never really wanted... He doesn't want you in burlap sacks. He doesn't want you walking around miserable. He causes you to lose your life so that you can take on something better. So that you can take on something that is more fulfilling, more joyful. In fact, He called it an abundant life. So don't get the idea that when we talk about sacrifice, when we talk about persevering, and all of the things that I've been teaching about, that this is not a joyful life. This is the abundant life. Because God gives you joy in it. And you find people look at you crazy. You know why? Because when somebody says, that Jennifer Hall, she's a nee, 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 and Jennifer hears about it, she goes, oh, praise God. If they're slandering me, the glory of God is on my shoulders. Isn't that neat? Can you all see the glory of God? Do, you look, do, I, do I look better today than I normally do? You're excited about things other people aren't excited about. Somebody slanders you and you get excited because they're only slandering you because of your love for Jesus. Somebody takes something from you and you go, oh, wow, God's going to give me back sevenfold. That neat? Take some more, please. You want my cloak too? You want me to go with you a mile? I'll go with you too, because God's going to add back to me. And by the way, you increase judgment on your head when you do those things. We can get excited about things other people can't, because we're not of this kingdom. 
We're of the kingdom that's taking over this kingdom. You know, if you know your daddy, I, well, I tell you, <laughs> I had a, an experience when I was a kid. I didn't plan to tell this. I'd probably get in trouble for telling it. But I had an experience when I was a kid. I used to like to shoot birds. Dude, I know you cannot relate to that. And I was given a BB gun and strict instructions not to shoot birds. And unfortunately, every once in a while, I'd shoot birds. Now, there's one thing to shooting birds out in the woods with a pellet gun, right? But it gets ever so much more difficult to get away with that doing it on the golf course. And it gets a little worse than that if you find a particular house like I did on the golf course with bird feeders everywhere and old people sitting out there watching the birds. Then when you shoot the birds, the persecution increases. And a particular man down the street from me that happened to have such a setup that I thought was just beautiful. I mean, what better place to shoot birds? They're everywhere and pretty, all kind of colors, easy to see. Like a painted target, I thought. So I'm popping off these birds left and right. And they don't know where it's coming from, which made it all the more fun, right? And then they spotted me. Guy comes out there and he says, I tell you what, I'm going to take that gun and I'm going to... No, 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 no. And if your daddy don't like it, you tell him to come down here and I will wrap that gun around his head too. Oh, at that I paused. I was scared. But at that moment I said, Sir, I would very much like to see you try to do that. I'm going to go get my dad, and I will be right back, okay? Because those of you that don't know my stepfather, this is not a, not a weak, feeble human being. And although I may have been in a lot of trouble for shooting those birds, I knew he was not going to let anybody hurt me. When you have a father that is your protector, you're not worried about people trying to harm you. In fact, I would have thought it was very funny for this guy to try to wrap a gun around my father's neck because I knew it couldn't happen. That's the maturity that you can face the trials from the enemy with. You can look and say, oh, dude, you're very best. You obviously don't know who my daddy is. Get, get your friends and come back because you're going to need a lunch and an army with you. It's not going to work. And you can face these problems with joy. This is how God laughs at his enemies. This is like a treasure. Finding the security that you can have in the kingdom is a treasure. And you should sell everything you have just for that kind of security, that kind of relationship. Moving on from Matthew 13, turn with me to Colossians 2. You hang a right in your Bible. You'll go through Acts and Corinthians and Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. In Colossians 2 which is on page 1309. Start reading with me in the first verse. I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they might know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in the body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are in Christ and how firm your faith is in Christ. In Jesus, all the treasure of wisdom and knowledge reside. 
And this is considered riches to us who are in Christ. One of the things that is beautiful about baptism is you're making a public show that whatever the sacrifice, you've considered it not worth comparing with the riches of the way that Jesus has taught you to live. And you're excited about that. That's why we look in this Word and other people go, oh, it's boring. You know, I was watching The Simpsons one time. hope that didn't surprise you. It actually should surprise you. I don't watch The Simpsons. Not because I think it's bad. I just can't get into it. But I was watching it because I've been talking about it with one of my friends. And Bart Wilson was reading a book. Not Wilson. That's not who. Who is it? It's Bart Simpson. Yeah, Bart Wilson was the guy I used to work with. <laughs> Sorry, Bart Wilson. Bart Simpson. <laughs> Bart Simpson was uh, reading a book on the couch. This little cartoon character was reading a, a book on the couch. And you're watching him read it, you know, and he's mumbling, you know, as he's reading it. He goes, oh, how boring. And he threw it over to the side. It was the Bible. You know, that's how the world looks at the Bible. And I look at it and I see the fragrance of life. You know, I read it to my kids. They don't see it as boring. I read to them about shipwrecks and snake bites and swimming in the open ocean and being beaten and yet joyful for Jesus. I read to them about the heroes of the faith. Men who were swallowed by whales and yet lived. Men who stood one or two or three against thousands in one. You know, the Bible contains stories of one guy standing in a narrow path and defeating an entire army because God was with him. You know, this Greek mythology has got nothing on us except their fables and ours are true. To me, this is a treasure. And I've considered no pressure in this world worth comparing to the treasures that are in this book. And what is more is it's not just that you read these and you're encouraged like they're just stories. We get the chance to live them out. There is absolutely no difference between Peter, difference between Peter or Paul or Ananias or James or the Jerusalem elders and you. None. They were men just like you. James makes that point. He says, The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. For Elijah was a man just like you. And yet he prayed and shut up the heavens for seven long years. That means that whatever God can do, which I think we all know is substantial, He can do through you. You just have to be willing. And the purpose needs to be there. I mean, no reason for Him to put the power in you to raise the dead, which is in all of you, if there's nobody dead. (laughs) You know? The reason needs to be there, and then the power will accompany it. Whatever He has called you to do, He will give you power to do. What an exciting life. Once you realize that, once you tap into it, it's impossible to be discouraged. It's impossible to be down. God does everything that you need. Your job is to trust Him. And part of that trust means that if you don't see it immediately, you wait for it to come and know that it will come. Brad, I prophesied to you about adventure. The kingdom is an adventure like that. I found it to be the most exciting, fulfilling adventure in my life. The saddest moments in my life, the very saddest moments have not been when I was asked to give up something for the kingdom. I've given away cars with joy. I've given up jobs with joy. I've moved from one city to another with joy. And it was not hard for me to do. The hardest things I have ever done in the kingdom was struggle with periods of inactivity where I didn't know what I was supposed to do. So I was sitting around not sure. That was the saddest moments in my life because I felt like the adventure stopped for a little while. And what do I need to do now? And I I became upset over that. 
But I found out that's part of the maturing process too. God sometimes wants me to just be still and know that He's God. Be willing to wait for Him to get some things in order for me to go out and try to conquer kingdoms. Life's an adventure in the kingdom and it's a good one. It's like treasure. In Mark 10, y'all turn with me to Mark 10, we find Peter, who I've always been able to relate to Peter. One reason I have is because the guy did amazing, extraordinary things and then followed him up with immediate buffoonery. And I know exactly what that's like. I am capable of greatness in the kingdom of God and I am capable of sinking to the lowest depths acceptable within the kingdom. And it's always amazed me. But now I can just stand back and look and say, wow, God knows how to work through fools. This is great. There's a chance for all of us. Even you. (laughs) Y'all in Mark? In Mark 10, starting in the 28th verse, starting in the 27th verse. Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. That's worth dwelling on right there. That could be a sermon in itself. You say, well, what's the context? What's he talking about? Does it matter? Does it matter what he said was not possible for men? Really doesn't. You know why? He said all things are possible with God. So it really doesn't matter what it was they were even talking about, does it? With God, it's all possible. Verse 28, Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, uh, with them, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Do you get the, 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 what he's saying? He's saying whatever it is that to follow him has cost you, he will find a way to reward you in this age and in the age to come. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a pretty good program to me. That could make somebody happy if you're in prison, couldn't it? That could make somebody happy if you got beat up for the gospel. Because you're thinking, wow, that was something I just sacrificed. It's pretty good, pretty substantial. And God's going to give it back to me in this life and the life to come. Now, wicked men could take this and make it some kind of weird investment program for financial gain. But those of us that truly have this treasure in our heart know what we're talking about. Is it more satisfying to get $100? Or to have somebody in your family totally born again and relieved of misery. I don't want money from God. That's not what makes me happy. What makes me happy is to see Him working in my life. To see His power displayed in the lives of my friends. To see somebody that used to be trapped and bound now free and dancing and exciting. Knowing that it could have been ten generations of alcoholics, drunks, failures. But now, in this one person, I'll change that family line forever. That's a satisfying thing. That excites me. I got the revelation one time that my mother, my mother hungering for a better life for herself, bringing me to church as a little boy and exposing me to Christianity, allowed uh, God to do something in me that could go backwards for those that were still alive, see them get saved in our family line, and change our family line from that point 
forever. No longer did anybody in the Stevens family line have to go to hell. No longer did people have to live in subject to all of the wickedness that my family's been subject to. I got that revelation. It was exciting. It was better than treasure. Think about this. What I learn and study and grow in in my lifetime, I will impart to that young man right over there and to his brother and to his sister and as many more kids as we have. They'll grow that in their lifetime and impart it to their kids. And this will grow for generations to come. Well, your lives have been changed. And you're going to impart something to another generation. You're imparting it to your neighbors, your friends at work, people around you right now. And if you're not, you need to. Because that's what your life's about. That's how you find fulfillment. Christians are excited when you have a Timothy to pour into. Christians are excited when you've met a Barnabas working out somewhere or running somewhere. You ran into a Wendell Stovall in a coffee house. You get excited because not only do you have somebody to pour into, but now you have somebody to run with. When you come across the rare person that can actually build into your life because their experience in the kingdom and their revelation exceeds yours, then my goodness, you found something that that really is fulfillment in life. To have all three of those things working? How awesome is that? This is a rich, abundant, full life. But you need to be looking for those things. You need to buddy up with one another. You need to see each other as Barnabas. Be encouraging to one another. You need to be looking for the opportunity to pour into somebody else's life because that's how you get fulfilled. If this thing in you is supposed to bubble up and overflow, you better be pouring it out somewhere or it's just wasted. And you know what? It stops bubbling if you don't do that. So you find somebody to pour it into. That means you're looking. It means when you go to Walmart, you're no longer just buying eggs and trash bags. You walk into Walmart thinking, all right, Jesus, what do you, I, I know you didn't bring me a child of the kingdom and an earth shaker into Walmart just to buy eggs. Why am I really here? And he said, well, I went to Walmart and I didn't see anything. Go back. Go back the next week with the same attitude. Expect miracles. Expect the kingdom to advance and you will find that it does. I promise. It's happened in my life for years. I took a job in Houston. I didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't even care about the industry. I took it expecting to see miracles in the workplace. Now, from time to time, I go through long periods where I forget that that's even the reason that I'm there. And every once in a while, I find a life that changes and it reminds me of why I came to this place. Do you understand what I'm saying? You can find adventure and fulfillment and power in life no matter where you are. If you're in the desert, find a way to bloom. That's what God wants of you. Peter said, hey man, what are you going to give us? We left everything for you. He said, I'll give you many hundred times more than this in this life and the life to come. Turn with me to Acts 20. Look at Paul's attitude. You can hang a left from where you're at. We're talking about what it means what it means to sell everything you have for that treasure you found in the field. All of this is in the context of the Maharaja of Punjab giving a queen a jewel as a child, not understanding just what that meant. But at one day, he came back wanting to know exactly what it was that he was giving up, wanting to acknowledge just how hard it was to give that up and do it as an adult, well, not much different than baptism. Baptism is giving up your life 
so that you can walk with Christ. And doing that in a public fashion for everybody to see. Y'all in the book of Acts? We're in Acts 20, starting in verse... Sixteen. Seventeen. Let's start in seventeen. Acts 20, verse seventeen. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the providence of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews." You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn and turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. What an attitude. This guy didn't need to get baptized every day to remind him. His life, every action, because persecution was so common in his life, Every day he was reminded. In fact, this is why this guy writes the words, I die daily. What does that mean, I die daily? Paul was obviously living. It meant that in every situation he considered himself dead to the situation and alive to Christ. What an awesome freedom. This revelation I've been studying into the law that I was telling you about before we began the message. What is so beautiful about this is it's perfect freedom. The perfect freedom comes like this. The law, the Mosaic law told the Israelite people, you need to do this, and if you don't do it, you're punished. And you can't do that, and if you do this, you're punished. All of these things. Well, Jesus came, He lived perfectly. Perfectly in every sense of the word, in perfect obedience to that law. And yet, He was punished as if He broke it. He didn't, but He was punished just like He broke it. We find out in the New Testament that that punishment was for us. In other words, He was punished for the times you were disrespectful to your parents. He was punished for the times that you didn't help your neighbor, although the perfect law of God says that you should. He was punished for the times that you didn't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, even though He always did. And because He was punished for that, and He died, the law no longer has any power over Him. He's received the full punishment for that. Now, you and I can identify with Him in that death. We can say, I know you did this, and you did it for me. That means that it's just as if I was punished for all of those things. I've already been punished for everything that could have ever been bad because I was punished in Christ for it. But what did Jesus do after the punishment? He got up out of the grave and walked in the newness of life. In the same way that you identify with His death, His punishment for for you in your stead, Now we identify with His new life. This means that although you didn't actually die, you count yourselves dead. Meaning that no longer are you fearful about anything. You're not going to be punished for anything in your lives anymore. 
That means you're free to do all the good of the law, all the good of God's righteous requirements without ever worrying about getting it wrong. All you have to do is try to get it right. All you have to do is try to walk in this new life in Christ. Paul had that working in him every day. So he said, I die daily. When his conscience condemned him, he said, oh, I'm dead. I'm dead. I was punished for that in Christ. Now I'm going to walk in the new life. Sorry, Lord, I'm going to keep going. Thank you for what you did for me. When he was tempted to do something that he shouldn't do, he said, oh, no, not going to do that. I'm dead to that. I've just died to that. I'm going to walk in the new life of Christ. In this way, he carried around death in his body. But he also carried life in his body. Baptism is symbolizing you being lowered into a grave with Jesus, showing He took the punishment for me. And now I'm going to walk in His new life, free to do everything that is good, free to do all that God requires the same way He did. All the punishment's been taken care of. Y'all, that's a treasure. You know how many people take pills to try to go through life like that with that kind of joy? And it doesn't work. (laughs) You do anything that you can to walk through life with a completely clear conscience, joy, and empowered. And Jesus has provided a way for us to do that. That's why Romans 8 says, there is now no condemnation for you. The Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is nothing out there to condemn you anymore. You're free to do all the righteous things that God would ask you to do. I was always proud of Paul. In Galatians 6, Paul said, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and me to the world. Your attitude needs to be, I'm not chasing the things the world is chasing. It's dead to me. I died to it because I died in Christ. Now I'm alive to God. That's the attitude that we carry around. I heard a preacher one time talking on the television. He said, don't you want the drug dealer's vehicle? Don't you want the drug dealer's suit? Don't you want the drug dealer's money? It's time to take it back for Jesus. I wanted to kick the television set. I was so mad. No! The world is crucified to me and me to it. I only want what God wants for me. When I was baptized, that's the pledge of a good conscience towards God that I made. My life is dead. Now I want your life, God. Mine wasn't working too good anyway. Sometimes the church was tempted to think of their old life. Paul said, hey, the things you did in darkness are shameful even to talk about. Sometimes we lean back, we look back at Egypt as if it was good because we had leeks and onions and we forget about the slavery that we were under. Do you remember what it was like to want to do good for somebody and didn't have the power to do it? Or to not want to do bad to somebody but just couldn't stop yourself from doing it? I was a clown in high school and there was a young man that was smaller than me and I was just kind of playing around with him and I carried it too far. And I hit him hard enough that he fell over a bench and on the ground. And I saw, and honestly, I wasn't trying to be malicious, but I was kind of a malicious guy. And I saw in his eyes the fear and the hurt when that happened. And it pierced me. I thought, man, I wished I could stop doing stupid things like this. I played practical jokes. I taped the kid to a toilet seat one time. Taped his whole body to a toilet seat one time. Went out and practiced football and thought it was funny. I wished I could quit doing things like that. And yet I found myself doing them all of the time. I remember what it was like to be a slave to carnal things. I one time started trying to do push-ups to stop cursing because my mouth was filthy and I knew it was wrong, 
But I got to where I could do hundreds of push-ups and could not quit cursing. I was a slave to it. I don't need to go into all of the things that I was a slave to. You know. You were a slave to them too. And if not them, something just like them. But Jesus came and He broke those chains. He gave me a way to do the good that I want to do without being condemned for the bad that I had done or would do in the future. He set me free from every curse in the law and gave me freedom to walk in the life of the law. And I thank Him for it every day. That's what baptism is. It's a testimony. It's a testimony. The life I led is dead. Now I'm walking in a new life with Jesus. Nobody can condemn me anymore. That guy's dead in the bottom of the pool or the baptismal. I'm alive in Christ now. He said, well, but I saw you do something bad. No, you misunderstood. That was the dead guy that's supposed to stay in the pool. Every once in a while, he just gets out and follows me around. That's why Paul sounds like a schizophrenic in Romans 7. The good that I want to do is not the good that I do, and the bad that I don't want to do, that I find myself doing. So what I found out is that's really the power of sin right there in me that is doing those things. It's not me. So what do you mean, Paul? That sounds like escapism to me. I mean, what are you talking about? That's what he's talking about. He knew he didn't really die the day he got born again and Ananias baptized him. He knew he didn't really die, but he counted himself dead. So whenever he saw that old guy working in him, he said, oh, no, no, that's not really me. I'm really born again and in Christ. That's the old dead guy. I just carry him around with me. I wish I didn't. I'm trying not to. Who's going to liberate me from this body of decay? Oh, my God, I'm looking forward to the resurrection. That's why he had that attitude. That's what baptism is. Now, let me ask you something. If you were baptized at four, five, six, seven, do you think you grasped that at all? No, you just wanted to be obedient. You love God and you wanted to show it. Well, praise God for that. That's good. That's good. Any young man that wants to get baptized can get baptized. Anyone. But there will come a day in your life when as an adult, you want to make good the commitment of an adult. Who would expect a kid to sign a contract for a mortgage? And now we're talking about eternal things. Hmm. Turn with me to First Peter. Am I boring, y'all? Good. First Peter 3. See, I get excited about things other people don't sometimes get excited about. So every once in a while I just figure I'd ask. First Peter 3, starting in, uh, oh my goodness. And, yeah, we, <laughs> we better start. Yeah, I'm, I'm counting the minutes I have left. Starting in verse 8. We'll teach on marriage some other time, which is the first eight verses. Although, how do we start this talking about wedding rings? You're married to Jesus now. The baptism that you do publicly is like wearing a wedding ring. So everybody will know you're married. That's what it's like. It doesn't save you. You're going to hear what Peter says. He says it saves you, and then he clarifies what he says. It doesn't actually save you. What it represents saves you. Verse 8. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. My God, the church has ignored that. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. With blessing, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Whoever would love life and see good days, 
must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. What does it mean to pursue something? (laughs) Apparently peace runs from us and you have to chase it down. Isn't it? I tell you what, my feet don't have any problem finding dissension. But they have a problem finding peace. So I have to make them move faster so I can get to the peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. If you have to be prepared to give an answer for everybody who asks the reason for the hope you have, that means that your life's demonstrating that you have hope. At the end of each day, look in the mirror and say, what about my life showed people that I have hope today? Was it the big frown on my face? Was it the fact that I was beating my kids? Was it, was it the fact that I was generally unhappy, mad all day today? It showed everybody, oh, that's right, nobody asked me today. Nobody asked me the reason that I had hope. I wonder why. If they're not asking us occasionally, it's because our lives aren't demonstrating what they're supposed to. Go back and read the other. Did, did you love life? Did you want to see good days? Did you keep your tongue from evil, from deceitful speech? Did you repent from evil and do good? Did you seek peace, pursue it? Did you do those things? If you do those things, you give people a reason to ask why. The Jews were very communal people. Their idea is, we love the Lord. We, we, we. We're very individualistic people. Our lives are compartmentalized. It's my life, my family, my kids. My, my, my. That's what God says. Oh, my, my, my. We need to be thinking about other people. Our lives are bigger than our own. Get outside of your apartment. Get outside of your house. Get outside of your family and your circle of friends and let your life expand to other people. That's what God wants of you. So that they can look and go, oh, wow, you know, that dude's pretty cool. Why is it that you're happy? What, is, what reason do you have for hope? We're in the same job. We've, neither one of us making any money. Why is it that you're happy all the time? Where is your hope? And you'll have a reason to answer them. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's, that way, he wrote that just for me in there. When I was first born again, I didn't have a problem walking up to somebody, grabbing them by the hair on their chest or under their arms in a public mall and shaking them because I thought they were doing something wrong. I'd been born again one week and the mall police came and got me. You know, I mean, I'd missed the gentleness and respect. Truthfully, I hadn't read that for yet. But do this with gentleness and respect. Keep a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slammer. Slander. You know why I said slammer? Because I was thinking of that prophecy about Matthew Pero. You have to be ashamed to speak negatively of Matthew Pero. His life's become like a hammer that shatters malicious talk. If you thought he did something bad, his lifestyle shatters the thought. That doesn't mean he's perfect, but wouldn't you describe him as somebody who's gentle and shows respect? I would too. The Bible teaches that that's like a hammer that shatters malicious talk. 
It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into the heavens and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to Him. I read all of that because He tells you the right way to live so that others will ask you for the reason that you have hope. And He goes on to say, wow, this is just like what's happened to the world. Did Noah have something to talk about after the flood? I bet he did. Do you think Noah had stories to tell after the flood? When he was spared from death and all of death around him was washed away, and he was raised in a newness of life to walk the earth after that. Do you think the man had testimonies to tell? I bet he did. This is just like the baptism that saves us, he says. Not the removal of dirt from the body. You take baths every day. I'm talking about the pledge of a good conscience towards God. When you are lowered into the water and raised out to walk the newness of life, you're identifying with Jesus being lowered into a grave and raised to walk in a newness of the power of life. And this action gives you something to talk about. It gives people something to see in your life. Not just the act that's the beginning. The newness of life. You can now walk up to somebody and say, Hey, Judah, I used to do that too. And you know what? Jesus has set me free. It's not that I'm any better than you. It's not that I don't deserve the same punishment you deserve. It's that Jesus took that punishment for me. And if you let Him, He'll take it for you. And then, better than that, He'll give you the power to walk in a new life. You don't get the curse that you deserve. You get the life that you don't deserve. And here's how you do it. You give up your desires and you take His. You give up your life and you take His. Sounds like a good deal. How do I do it? Well, you call on His name. You trust Him. You ask Him to save you. Then you go out publicly in front of all your friends, all of your family, and you make the, the pledge in front of them, in front of the whole world, let them know that you died with Christ and are raised to walk in a new life. It's spiritual bankruptcy. You walk in freedom after it. There's just no seven-year penalty. Now, I don't know what your lives have been like, but there have been some days if there had been no penalty for bankruptcy, I'd have done it that moment. Seriously considered it quite a few times, even with the penalties. Does that surprise you? Does it make you think I'm a bad guy? I know exactly what it's like to be indebted more than I have the ability to pay. That's why Jesus saved me. I realized that I owed a great spiritual debt to everybody around me and had no ability to affect it. And He came and He took that debt for me and set me free. Boy, I tell you, because you look at your financial troubles in a whole new light, because you have mercy on people, but I'm not talking about money. Turn with me to Titus. We're going to close here soon. Titus 3. All the T's in your Bible are together. So you can hang a left to get to Titus from where you're at. Titus is on page 1327. 
in the Thompson chain, but we're going to go to the third chapter, which is on the next page. Verse 3. At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. <laughs> you hear the testimony? Testimony is, I used to be just like you. <laughs> I used to be a slave, but I'm not anymore. We lived in malice, in envy, being hated and hating one another. If you spend an hour in traffic Monday morning, look around you and tell me that that's not exactly what's going on. People hating and being hated. That describes the life of the world. They gather around them a few friends that they say, oh, these are my friends, but their lives are full of people they hate and they're hated by. But when the kindness and love of our God, or of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, the baptism of rebirth, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable. For everyone, those of you that will not be baptized Saturday, I want you to remember the things that your life is supposed to be devoted to. And when you watch a brother or a sister making this pledge, this pledge of a good conscience towards God to die to the old desires, to live to the new ones, to identify with Jesus' death so that you might identify with His life, you'll be reminded of what you did on that day. And if you can't remember it, it might be time to do it again. This is something we're supposed to carry around in the foremost part of our thoughts. It's something that is supposed to motivate us. The same way that every time you look at your hand in the morning while you're shaving, guys, or brushing your teeth, girls, you see your wedding ring and it reminds you of that day. Who has a wedding that they couldn't remember? Who stood and took vows and doesn't even remember it? What kind of anniversary do you celebrate then? I won't read you John 3 because if you can't quote John 3 by now, I hadn't done my job. But in John 3, yeah, it'd be indicting of me, wouldn't it? <laughs> in John 3, Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need to be born of the water and the Spirit. Some people have been so quick because they're zealous for, to baptize people, especially in churches where they put the numbers on the wall. I passed a church in Lafayette, Louisiana. Not a typical church there. It's of the other persuasion. But it said... Uh, Come this Sunday, high attendance Sunday. Thinking, what a ridiculous concept. Why isn't every Sunday high attendance Sunday? Let's just have more people in the building for the sake of having them in the building. Those very same kind of churches post the number of baptisms that they have. They give quarterly reports as if it's a financial model you're supposed to watch. And maybe for them, it is a financial model. You know why I'm interested in baptisms? It's a heart issue. It shows where your heart is with God. 
I've seen lots of people go in wet sinners and come out wet sinners. But I've seen lots of lives change too. So people eager to force people into baptism have said, oh, you have to be born of the water and the Spirit. This is baptism. No. No, it's not baptism. That's an analogy about natural birth and spiritual birth. But I tell you what, just like you're born naturally and you're born spiritually, baptism is a sign of being birthed spiritually. It's what it is. You're walking, you're being birthed right out of a grave and into life. Romans 6 teaches on it powerfully. We're going to read Romans 6 before we leave and I'm going to read it to you beside the pool and I'm going to talk to you about it all week and I'll probably preach about it for a long time because Romans 6 contains the words that tell you you have to die to sin and live to Christ. If you didn't know anything else about Christianity, you need to know you need to die to sin and live to Christ. That really sums up what God wants of you is die to sin and live to Christ. So we're going to turn there. Those of you that are taking notes though, because I see some of you as studious people are writing things down out there, and I appreciate it. Acts 2.38 teaches that you baptize in the name of Jesus. Acts 10.48 teaches that you baptize in the name of Jesus. Acts 19.5 teaches, guess what? That you baptize in the name of Jesus. When you don't know how to settle a theological issue, when you see two Scriptures that seem to contradict, go to the book of Acts and see how the apostles understood it. Isn't it reasonable to assume that the people, the very people who wrote the Bible, who heard the words of God, would have had the practice right? I would think so. So if anybody's upset about the way that I baptize, you need to be upset about the way that Peter baptized. You need to be upset about the way that Paul baptized. You need to be upset about the way that the book of Acts portrays baptism because I baptize in the name of Jesus. That's because that's the way they did it. Oh, well, Matthew says baptize this way. Well, the apostles obviously understood it to mean in the name of Jesus because that's exactly what they did. You all with me on that? Sprinkling versus dunking. I don't care. I'll baptize you with a big gulp cup in a shower if that's all we have. But if we have access to a way to get you under the water, I just want to show you how completely submerged in death you were and how you've been removed from that and into life. I think it's a better type. Say, well, was baptism in the Bible done by sprinkling or done by dunking. i got news for you, especially those of you that come from Baptist backgrounds. It's done by both. I've read all the books, all the arguments, and that's all they are. They're foolish arguments. They was done both ways. In the temple, you baptized almost everything. How do you immerse an altar? But the Bible says it's baptized. I guarantee you they didn't take it out to a, a place to do a mikvah and dunk it in the water. But they baptized it. It was washed. And you can tell me, oh, well, that word means to immerse. Well, okay, but they obviously didn't immerse it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I can immerse my hands, right? That's great. It's a good thing to do. I want to get them thoroughly clean. Let's immerse them. But if I'm wearing jeans or a toga or something, it's hard to immerse my feet, isn't it? Probably just going to pour water on it. So whether water got poured on you, sprinkled on you, or you got dunked, it really doesn't matter as long as the pledge of a good conscience was there. But when people ask me, why do you baptize the way you do? You were thoroughly immersed in sin, and I think you ought to thoroughly be immersed in the water, and I'm going to pull you out. <laughs> you know? And if the water's not deep enough, then we'll sprinkle you. you know? If it's too cold outside, we'll put you in a warm shower. I don't really care as long as the pledge of a good conscience towards God is there. So if people get all hung up on that and want to invalidate your baptism, God will invalidate them. Don't worry about that. Okay? And you'll never receive persecution. You say, well, mine was done 
in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Eric, your teaching, it needs to be done in the name of Jesus. They're the same thing. That's exactly what I'm teaching. Is that when the apostles heard that, they said, oh, wow, we can do that in the name of Jesus. He is those things. I don't have to explain to you how He is those things. I just tell you the apostles knew He was because that's how they did it. (laughs) Does that clear up all the theological arguments for a moment? Okay, then we'll move on to Romans 6, which is what's important, and we're going to close with it. Y'all didn't have any theological arguments, did you? I've read all Oswald's books. No, Oswald? Yeah, Oswald. Oswald's the preacher, or the uh, pitcher. Preacher, pitcher, very close, right? Who won that game the other night? I've read all of the books, all the arguments on baptism. I spent more time studying it than most people. What matters is the pledge of a good conscience. Don't get hung up on all that. He said, well, what do I wear? How do I do it? What's the ceremony? I don't care. Wear whatever you want to wear. Just be decent. You know? Matt and I were at a baptism one time where the people were not very decent in the way they were dressed because they didn't know. They were just born again. It was memorable. <laughs> you know? Been 12 years. We stayed, you know, all, all one of us had to do was mention baptism. We could tell you everybody that was there. <laughs> Been working for years to get that out of my memory. You know? <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, I probably shouldn't have said that, huh? Romans 6. Y'all there? Page 1253 in your Thompson chain. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? This argument is, wow, well, if Jesus has taken care of all the penalty of our sins, if I'm not going to get stoned for doing anything wrong, do we just keep sinning so that Jesus, what He did, is more magnified? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Do you see the picture? Say, well, I don't have a swimming pool to get baptized in. Well, we could go out and bury you in a sandbox if you don't mind. And pull you out, I don't care. The idea is that you were covered by death. You were thoroughly immersed in it. By the way, in the Bible, sometimes, just for fun, go look at the way that the oceans, water, waves, sea is used. It will surprise you when you start to line up all of the Scriptures that talk about it being the grave and it being the gates of hell. It will surprise you. The type is that you were lowered into hell with Jesus, not just the grave, and pulled right out of it. You received all of the punishment that sin deserved. Or Jesus received it in your stead, and now you're identifying with what He did. This is a public testimony, like a wedding ceremony. Hey, you ladies, especially those of you who hadn't been married yet, could you be married in the Congo without a wedding ceremony? Could two people just make a commitment before God and be married? Sure, sure they could. But wouldn't you wonder why your husband wanted to do this in private and not in front of everybody? Wouldn't that hurt your feelings? And yet Christians approach baptism that way? Let's do it on a Sunday night when the church is only one quarter full. Don't call my friends. Don't call my family. I'm ashamed to be doing this. I'm embarrassed because I'm 30 years old and I should have been baptized when I was a kid or I was baptized. You can't enter the kingdom with pride. The guy that did me the most harm in my life had a a real flaw. And I, I pray God fix it for him. But I knew something was wrong when I found out he had been in ministry 20 years and had never been baptized. Mm, you got some commitment issues. That means you love Jesus when it's popular. I was really proud of some other men of God in my life that taught on this openly. I said, no, that's not the way you do that. 
Buster May used to do baptisms all the time. He didn't care whether he'd been saved 10 years, 20 years, 2 years. Because he knew the value of it. I preached on this one time, baptized, I don't know, 30-something people. Then a couple weeks later, my wife got baptized. She'd been a Christian a long time, been baptized when she was a kid. But now she's an adult, and she wanted to make that commitment publicly in front of everybody. That's all that is. That's all it is. We don't make it more than it is. Verse 5, If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly also be united with Him in His resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body of sin might be done away with and that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. That's what baptism is about. Dying to all of the penalties of sin. Dying to the very power of sin and being raised in a new life in Jesus free to do all the good that God has called you to do. Read this chapter this week. Do whatever it takes to get to a baptism. Do whatever it takes. You know why? This is a momentous event in somebody's life. It's more powerful than a wedding. It's more powerful than a funeral. It's more powerful than the other reasons people take off of work and do all of this. Do what it takes to get there. And when you're watching it, don't just say, oh, well, that's good for them. You need to be reflecting on that same commitment that you made. In fact, you should reflect on it daily. You really should. Because this empowers us to walk a new life. It reminds you of the commitment. I wish you could wear a big sign on your head that said, I was baptized. If you had to wear that everywhere you went, you probably wouldn't do some of the things that you did. You understand? Y'all stand up and let's pray. Baptism is a joyful event. I'm excited about it. I have a picture in the living room of the day that I baptized Mandy. It's one of the... I baptized lots of people. Lots of people in Baton Rouge. But I've never been prouder than the day that I baptized Mandy. You know why? Mandy had had a walk with God for a long time. But her walk with God so dramatically changed that she wanted to make a commitment. She wanted to show how that change had happened. And I took that as a real compliment that I had some part in her life. I'm excited. So I, I leave the picture right out there for everybody to see. I love baptisms because it means people have gotten serious about Jesus. I love them when they're public. I wish we could go do it at Astroworld in the wave pool. But they're closing it down. They knew we were planning it. 